Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Josh Habiger, who's the executive chef and co-founder of Bastion in Nashville, Tennessee. Josh has had a pretty interesting career. I mean, he's helped start the Capbird Seat, Pinewood Social. He's been involved with a bunch of different restaurants, especially with Strategic Hospitality Group, which is down in Nashville. They have a handful of restaurants that are still chef-driven, but also, you know, he's helped with uh, Minneapolis, where he's from. Spent a bunch of time on a salmon fishing boat, like three, four years, kind of in season and kind of bounced around too as well. So pretty lengthy career, pretty detailed career, and he's done a lot of different things. So it was really cool to finally be able to get him on the podcast before vacation to like Mexico, based on what I could piece together from Instagram after we recorded this just before the end of 2021, just before the holiday break and everything like that. So this is also the first episode where we started implementing the writing questions from the listeners, fans, all that stuff. So there'll be one of those questions going forward in every episode that we ask the chef. We put some posts up on Reddit and we've had some uh, written in questions and stuff like that. So if you want to write in a question that you have for a chef coming up on the podcast or sommelier, something like that, we'll kind of best assign it. Feel free to write us spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the webpage. You can follow Josh on Instagram at softarchitect is his Instagram handle and then also at Bastion Nashville and at Strategic Hospitality. Uh, They have their own Instagram for kind of all their restaurants uh, in their portfolio too as well. So check all that stuff out. Bastion's a pretty interesting place. One side is kind of a counter, almost tasty menu style restaurant. And then the other side is just kind of their bar area where they have comedy shows and live music and stuff like that. And it's in this kind of area outside of downtown. They kind of redid this giant warehouse. And so there's like a coffee house next door. There's like a furniture place just a little bit down the block too as well. So it's a pretty interesting spot, but make sure to check it out if you ever get down to Nashville or or what have you. It's an awesome restaurant. They kind of do the menu where it's almost like prefix in a way, but it basically have like three options for each course and it's like five courses. So you can kind of choose your own adventure, kind of mix and match and stuff like that too as well, which we'll post. uh, I think I have a copy of the one from when we went. So if not, I'll, I'll find one to post it and some of the pictures too as well. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Subscribe, follow the podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. We're on all the major platforms and a whole bunch of smaller ones. If you have an individual player or platform that you prefer to use. Also, the podcasts are up on YouTube as well. It's audio only, so it's just a still image, but then the audio comes through. So if you want to use YouTube as your preferred podcast player, you can do that. Definitely make sure to subscribe to the channel on there if you do, but otherwise, uh, make sure to follow or subscribe, Spotify, Apple, all that stuff. Without further delay, here is my conversation with Chef Josh Habiger, the executive chef at Bastion in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks again for coming on. You know, I know things are hectic, holiday season, all that stuff. So appreciate the time that you're able to take out. It was probably about a year ago now. You know, we did like an Airbnb thing in Nashville, went to a bunch of different restaurants. Um, we were able to go to Bastion because you guys kind of reopened after COVID and everything and had a great time, had a great meal. So You've been very involved in a lot of different restaurants, a lot of different famous restaurants up to now at this point, which we'll kind of get into. But we'll go all the way back to the beginning like we do with pretty much everybody. How did you first kind of get into cooking, working in kitchens? I mean, you're originally from Minnesota. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in rural Minnesota, St. Joseph, Minnesota. It's a really tiny town, about 3,000 people, one set of stoplights. It's probably a little bigger now, but there was a a diner there at the stoplights called Kay's Kitchen. When my mom was pregnant with me, she was a waitress there. We were living in a trailer park next to it. About 15 years later, I was a 
dishwasher there. Uh, it was all the same, like management, you know, it's a, a small town business. So like it was, uh, you know, the same people that my mom worked with. I was working with 15 years later. I don't know. I was a dishwasher there to start very quickly, moved up to being a cook. I think I was just excited to see like what other people were eating. You know, we didn't go out to eat a lot. So it was cool to see like what, uh, what people ate. Out there. I don't know. It's like a, almost like a, a life hack where I was like, oh, I get to I get to try this food and this is a diner food. It's not really that exciting, but like, oh, I get to eat this food for free and I get to try it. And I get to, you know, from that place, I moved on to like a steakhouse and then kind of one of those uh, kind of fake Italian Olive Garden-ish sort of restaurants in uh, St. Cloud, which is like the next town over. We never went to eat at those places, but I got to try that food because I was there making it. How far away is the area that you grew up in, like away from Minneapolis, St. Paul? Like what's the nearest biggest city? Uh, St. Cloud would be the next city, but that's not, that's maybe 50,000 people. We called it the city, but it wasn't a city. I'll apologize to anybody from St. Cloud listening to this, uh, but St. Cloud is an awful place. St. Joe is cool. It has some character. Minneapolis is fucking great. Phenomenal city. Like I love Minneapolis. I'll always love Minneapolis and St. Paul. Yeah. St. Cloud is garbage. St. Joe is about 70 miles west of uh, Minneapolis. It's pretty much in the middle of Minnesota. Now, when you enrolled eventually, I think at St. Cloud State University, right? And that was before you went to culinary school. So what was your career path before eventually you shifted to focus on culinary? You know, I went to college because you're supposed to go to college. That's what everybody tells you when you're growing up. I just went to St. Cloud because, you know, we didn't have money for a fancy school. And it was made clear that I was going to pay for my own college. So I just picked a local school that was cheap. (laughs) And uh, uh, St. Cloud State is not, you know, not very awesome. Got a great hockey team, though. I didn't play hockey, so it wasn't relevant to me. I think I wanted to be an English major. I think that was the the goal. I liked, you know, reading and writing and creative writing and stuff like that. Don't do much of it these days, but that was what I wanted to do. And then I failed my English class. I was like, ah, maybe that's not what I want to do. I don't know. I, I had a lot more focus and a lot more fun working in a restaurant than I did going to college, you know? In those days, there weren't a lot of culinary schools. So like the people that I worked with were like, I don't know. I mean, there's a dude that just got out of jail on one side of me. And then a guy that was like going to school to get his PhD in meteorology on the other side of me. And I thought it was so cool that you're like, where else in the world would you be in this situation where we're all friends and we're all like hanging out and, you know, having beers after work, even though I was 18. I thought it was a really cool environment. I really liked restaurants. I liked the people that I was surrounded with. Um, I think restaurant people are very accepting and very... uh, not your typical people. They're interesting. I think you're working at maybe it was the Italian restaurant or something like that, but then you wind up deciding to go to culinary school. In those days, there were not a ton of culinary schools yet. There was, you know, Johnson and Wales and uh, Culinary Institute of America. And the chef that I worked for at that place in St. Cloud was a chef at a, or he went to culinary school at a New England Culinary Institute in Vermont. And I read a little bit about that school and I was like, oh man, this, sound, this place sounds really cool and ended up uh, going there. I didn't graduate, but I went to the first uh, six months of the program. And then it was like a six month internship. And then you were supposed to do six more months of school and another internship. And, uh, you know, I went and worked at this restaurant in Minneapolis for my internship, a chef named Doug Flicker, who I think is just incredibly talented and amazing human. He was at a restaurant called Araga. I don't know. He was like, man, if you're going to pay another $25,000 to go back to school for another six months, he's like, if I were you and if I could do it all over again, and if I was in your situation, he's like, I would just save up, you know, a few thousand dollars and try to go get a job in Europe somewhere. I stayed working there for about a year, maybe longer. Ended up getting a ticket to uh, London. I had a buddy that was squatting in, uh, in London and he was like, hey, come hang out here. We lived in this really sketchy place in King's Cross that nobody paid rent for. I don't really understand how he found that place. I don't think there was heat. I think there was hot water. 
there was a bathtub that worked and a sink that worked and a toilet that works. And that's, you know, it's kind of all you need. Like London doesn't have like AC, right? They're one of those cities, kind of like San Francisco, where most places don't have AC. Yeah, I guess this was like kind of in the in the colder months. It didn't really matter yet. Probably like a February, March, April of, I guess this would be 2002 at this point, uh, 2001, somewhere in there. He was at a place, uh, it was a pretty famous London restaurant, more like a popular fancy restaurant than like an interesting restaurant, if I can say that. I don't think he loved it, but I ended up at first going to this place called The Real Greek, which is a, a Greek restaurant. I was dating a Greek girl at the time, and I thought that would be a cool, uh, I don't know, thing to check out. So I was there for a couple of weeks, and then uh, the chef there had uh, mentioned a place called St. John, and I had heard and read about St. John at that point. So I went and hung out uh, there for about a week or two, and uh, it was funny because it was the first day I had told anyone there when whenever anybody asked like where I was living or where I was staying I would just give like a vague answer and that was the first time I told this girl I was like oh no we're spotting in this flat in King's Cross and uh, coincidentally that day you know not related obviously but that day when we got back there was a sign on the on the door that said you guys have to get out of here Fergus the chef at uh, St. John had mentioned a place called uh, I was working there for free and I don't know if people were stodging in that way in those days yet. He was really kind of flabbergasted that I wanted to like come and work at the restaurant for free and not get paid and that I was that interested in learning what they were doing. But I, yeah, like I said, I did that for a little while. And then um, when they found us in London, I was like, well, I guess I got to go somewhere. And he had mentioned a place called uh, The Fat Duck outside of London. So I showed up there with a backpack and the guy said that I could start immediately. How big are those kitchens that you're working in? Because, I mean, the Fat Duck is a pretty famous restaurant. I mean, it was, you know, among the best in the world, you know, on the, the rankings thing back in mid-2000s or, or whatever. But, like, how many people were in those kitchens when you're there? Because, I mean, you're clearly not the only person staging. When I got to the Fat Duck, it was – there were people, uh, other people staging there, I think. Maybe there's one kid from Spain that was staging there. And then, uh, I don't know, there weren't a lot in those days. But, you know, it's staging. They would give you the – the shittiest tasks they had. And sometimes they would set you. And in those days, there was a, there were like these seven sheds back behind the fat duck. And they were all like these kind of wooden sheds with, you know, one might have a, a bunch of pots and pans in it. One might have a chest freezer or a couple chest freezers filled with stuff. And so they'd like, you know, set, throw you in the, in the shed with the chest freezer. You'd put a cutting board on the chest freezer and you'd work out there. And then during service, you'd be inside and helping do whatever. They put most of their stages in pastry during there was like kind of a canopy station and the pastry stations in like the side kitchen. And then the, the main line just didn't really have enough people. I ended up going back there a few years later, maybe in 2005, 2000, end of 2004, beginning of 2005, somewhere in there. At that point, they, uh, they took over a prep kitchen across the street or next door or something like that. So they, they have expanded. The, the kitchen itself hasn't really gotten bigger as far as I know. Maybe it has, but anyway, it's tiny. It's packed. I mean, you're shoulder to shoulder with other people. You were there probably like six months or so? No, no. I was only at the Fat Duck, I think, for a, a month or so. And then and then I had to come home. Um, when I was there, everybody everybody in England was like, where are you from? Are you from San Francisco or New York? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm from the, the part that's in between those two, you know? Uh, but those were kind of the, you know, culinary cities that people knew of. Chicago sometimes, too. But anyway, when I, when I got back, I was like, I, I got to save up and I got to move to New York. So went back to Minneapolis and stayed on somebody's couch and worked for, I think, just a summer, like three months. Um, two different restaurants and tried to save up as much money as I could. I knew a guy that was moving to New York, so ended up moving there with him. He was a music student, so we lived on the northern tip of Manhattan. Him and his girlfriend went to Manhattan School of Music, and I had a long commute to Kraft, which is in uh, like Union Square. The chef there at the time was Marco Canora. Yeah, Tom Clicky was there, but not in the kitchen, I guess. 
It's a nice way to say it. Marco's fucking great. You know, he has a hearth and a, I don't know. He's got restaurants in New York. He's, he's just a awesome, awesome dude. Very different approach than, you know, going from the fat duck to going to craft was a pretty weird transition just because they were almost the exact opposite in terms of like culinary approach. So how did you pick craft? Was that just you applied to a bunch of different restaurants? Did you come up with a list or was it just like you found out, hey, this place is hiring, start there? They had just won a uh, best new restaurant, like James Beard, a uh, best new restaurant that the year before that. So I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's the cool spot. That's uh, they're the best new restaurant. And I, you know, I was I'm a small town kid in the big city. Like I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted. I knew I wanted to live in New York and I wanted to learn how to cook there. And uh, I think a friend of a friend had worked there or somehow I knew a guy that worked for Craft Bar through some people in Minneapolis. I mean, he just got me the stodge there. I think that's as far as you can, he certainly didn't get me the job there. I think he probably would have said, no, this kid sucks <laughs> and not had them hire me. And then it was, it was rough at first, you know, it's a completely different pace than I was used to, a completely different uh, idea than I was used to. I don't know, New York City kitchen is different than anything I had experienced at that point in my life. I don't know. I mean, I got, I got to a point where I was comfortable and we were having a good time. It took a little while though. Were you working like every day or did you get any time to kind of bum around Manhattan? It was a pretty, you know, they, they kept it to five days, five, 10 hour shifts a week. I think I got paid 12 bucks an hour and then you get 10 bucks of overtime. Which, yeah, 10 hours of overtime a week. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't making enough money to enjoy New York City. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we would go to dive bars in the East Village and stuff like that on our days off. So from there, I think you eventually wind up going up to Kodiak, Alaska, right? One of the guys I worked with, this guy, Drew Boleen, who's a chef down in Atlanta now, he owns a place called 246 with Ford Fry and works with the Ford Fry group. He's an awesome dude, but he and I were working together at Kraft. He and I, you know, we were about the same age and we were the same kind of point in our career where we were like, I don't know. He's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay here? And I was like, I don't know, man. I feel like if I stay in New York for, if I renew my lease, then I'm going to end up working here for another year, becoming sous chef and probably never leaving New York. And I'm like, I'm just not, I was 23 at the time. So I was like, I'm not ready to do that. And uh, I'd mentioned wanting to be a snowboard bum. And he was like, that sounds awesome. So he and I moved out to Vail, Colorado for a winter. Yeah, we did that. It was a blast, but it was not, I don't know. It also wasn't as like culinary folk. That that became such a, I don't know, a secondary, I don't know. It was the only time in my life where like my job was like a secondary thing, but we had a lot of fun. Uh, and then after that, I'd left that job on not the best terms. I had some friends visiting from Minnesota, these two girls, and they were like, hey, we're going to Mexico. Uh, we're leaving from Denver tomorrow. You should come with us. And I was like, ah, I got to work tomorrow. She's like, you've been complaining about your job the whole time we've been here. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. She's like, you should just come to Mexico with us. It's like, okay. So, you know, I texted the sous chef the next day and said, hey, decided to go to Mexico instead of go come to work today. I'm sorry. And hopefully he's forgiven me. Of all the shitty things, you know, like you do uh, in your younger days, like they definitely come back. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've definitely uh, maybe not dealt with the exact same thing, but definitely been put in a lot of uh, hard places as a, or difficult places as a, a chef and manager. So I think I've, I've paid a, uh, whatever penance I had to for, for doing that uh, at this point. Uh, but then um, anyway, uh, after that, I ended up uh, just kind of moving my stuff back to uh, Minnesota. And uh, I mean, I still didn't really have anything, uh, any belongings. But um, yeah, then I was <laughs> talking to a girl at a bar and said something about like, yeah, I think next I'm just going to be a fisherman in Alaska. And I was kind of talking, you know, I was just kind of being a dude, like saying something like that to a girl at a bar. But then the bartender overheard me and, and the bartender was like, oh, I have a friend that does that. You should talk to him. And I was like, oh, shit, maybe I actually could do this. And I talked to this guy and he was like, yeah, man, just, uh, you know, go up to Kodiak sometime at the end of May. Season usually starts right around the first of June. And so I 
got a ticket to Anchorage and I was like, you know, I got to Anchorage and I was like, how do I, is there like a bus to Kodiak? And they were like, uh, Kodiak's an Island. Like, uh, <laughs> you have to take a ferry there. And I was like, oh, cool. Where's the ferry leave from? They're like, well, you can either go to Seward or Homer. And then there was a bus going to Seward and Homer. Like, I think each place had a bus that would go once a week, twice a week or something like that. And then I think the ferry left twice a week or whatever. So it took me longer than it anticipated to get to Kodiak, but I got there. I actually checked into a homeless shelter there because I didn't really have a place to stay and uh, stayed there for probably, I don't know, eight days or something like that, which that's an experience. I just, you beat the dock every day. One day I saw this guy loading groceries onto a boat and I was like, Hey man, can I just help you with that? Cause I need something to do. <laughs> and I didn't know that they needed someone and I didn't think they were going to hire me. And I just like wanted somebody to talk to and hang out with. So I was just putting away groceries on this boat. And at the end of it, he was like, Hey man, you need a job. Like you seem pretty cool. I wouldn't mind working with you. And, uh, Anyway, went back later that day and the guy hired me. I ended up doing three seasons in Alaska on that same boat. Yeah, I think Homer is like, isn't that where the Iditarod starts? I think it ends in Nome. So you wind up working summers essentially, right, on a salmon fishing boat. I think most people associate fishing in Alaska with, you know, crabbing and all that stuff that they see on TV and whatnot. So the sea isn't as rough in the summer. It's still dangerous, right? Because you go pretty far out, but it's not as dangerous. That makes sense. It's different, you know. I would say that it's certainly not as you're not on the Bering Sea, so so there's that. With salmon fishing, you are generally fishing right along the coastline, so you're always right next to the shore when you're fishing. Yeah, you're, we were inside, like Kodiak is inside of the the Gulf of Alaska as opposed to the Bering Sea. So yeah, the waters the waters not as crazy. I mean, there were definitely shitty days where the the sea was bad and boats went down and stuff like that. But you know, when I went up there, I was like, oh, this is supposed to be like one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, and you definitely learn like. Oh yeah, if you put your foot there at the wrong point when that line's going out, you're gonna go with it. Or, you know, just little things where the first day we were out, I like, you know, went to the back of the boat to just take a piss and just pissing off the edge of the boat. And the skipper was like, No, 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 that's not what you do. And I'm like, What do you what do you mean? He's like, just piss on the deck and then spray it off the hose because if you're right against the rail, we hit a bad wave, nobody's paying attention. Tomorrow morning we wonder why you're not in your bunk. <laughs> We're not going to be able to turn around and find you. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Did you ever consider working on like the winter season on any of the boats or anything like that? Or were you just like, nah, I'm summer only? Every year I was like, you know, this year I'm going to stick around. I'm going to work crab or I'm going to work halibut or I'm going to work opies or whatever. By the end of the salmon season, I was like, I just want to fucking get out of here. <laughs> you know, I think, I don't know. I think that happens a lot, probably. Salmon season's like uh, just a grueling, like, I don't know, from June to September. You're just working all day, every day. What was the craziest story when you were on the boat from the three years that you remember? I don't know. There were a few weird ones. You ever see that David Blaine thing where he like puts the like pick through his, I don't know, some big like metal spike through the palm of his hand. So I got to do that. Uh, not on purpose, not, not as a magic trick, but as an actual like uh, accident. What else? I don't know. I mean, there's some beautiful things, you know, like just seeing humpback whales like breaching right next to the boat and porpoises swimming with the boat and stuff like that. Little grizzly bears, like grizzly bear cubs playing on the shore, stuff that I think people pay a lot of money to see that we would just like take for granted because we saw it so much. Yeah, that's kind of what a previous guest we had on the podcast, Brandon Grissetti, he owns Pigeon up in Vancouver. Like he worked like halibut fishing and stuff for a while back, like in the early days of his career. And like, yeah, he would say that there's just stuff that you would see that you're the only person maybe who ever saw it or one of like, you know, the small handful of people that ever saw it. And that was kind of like the coolest part. So at some point, I think is maybe after the first season, you wind up back and you wind up on the opening team at Alinea. I think I ended up back at the Fat Duck after fishing 
And then, oh yeah, after the first year of fishing, I got a check for $18,000 at the end of the season. I flew to San Francisco because I had a friend living there, spent maybe a week hanging out there. And I stopped at some restaurants and thought about like, oh, maybe a cool place to work or whatever. And I, I do like kind of regret never moving out there because I feel like Northern California is pretty amazing. In the, I mean, obviously in the culinary world and uh, for, for a lot of other reasons. Then from there, uh, Craigslist had like this ride share thing back in the day. I don't know if they still have that. They probably shouldn't just because that's probably incredibly dangerous, but it's basically online hitchhiking. But I got rides from uh, San Francisco to Minnesota, to Chicago, to Philly, to New York. I think I made it all the way across the country for like, basically, I think I had to buy one guy a sandwich. I just traveled really cheap in those days. From New York, went uh, back over to the Fat Duck. And then when I was there the second time, it was, yeah, this is probably the beginning of late 2004 or early 2005. And when I was in Chicago, I was going to stage at this restaurant called Trio because I heard the chef was amazing. And when I reached out to them, they were like, actually, uh, Chef Grant's not here right now. Um, he's doing his own restaurant. I was like, oh, my, I'm going to work there. Now, when I was back at the Fat Duck the second time, we, you know, you work kind of like 8 a.m. to 2 or 3 p.m. And then you get a little break for, from 3 to 5 or so, and then work from 5 to 11 or midnight or whatever. So you get kind of this like every day is like a split double. But I would go to the library in that little break time and, you know, check my email and stuff like that. Uh, I would always send an email to this Grant guy. And uh, eventually he was like, hey, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but we're not going to hire anybody that's not uh, that I haven't worked with before in the kitchen. And then I responded with, what about hiring me as a food runner? If you hire me as a food runner, I'm going to know everything about all the dishes. And then if something opens up in the kitchen, I'm already going to be one step ahead. And, uh, you know, I'll know all the ingredients and blah, blah, blah. He was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And worked something out with the general manager there. And that actually became like a, a thing for a while. Like if you wanted to get a job at Alinea, you started as a food runner and then you moved into the kitchen. The problem with that in those days was, I, you know, I probably took home the equivalent of like $45,000 a year as a food runner. But then when I switched the kitchen, I think it switched to about $23,000 a year. So roughly how long were you at Alinea? I was there for the first year from opening day to the one year anniversary. And then I think you wind up going back up doing the salmon season again. Yep. Back to Alaska. Uh, and then back to Minnesota, back to Alaska again. And then I ended up moving to Nashville in 2009. Because when you go back to Minnesota, I think you wind up at a, it was like a restaurant and a hotel or like Porter and Fry or something like that. That was your first CDC job, essentially. Actually, there was a chef from Minnesota that uh, came to eat here pretty recently. And I was just talking about like how, uh, how much potential that restaurant had. Like when we opened that restaurant in the hotel, it was like me and Eric Anderson, Stephen Brown, Jamie Malone, Landon Schoenfeld, Shane Porto, Doug Flicker. I mean, the list goes on. Mike Brown that has travail, like all these amazing people that went on to run the Twin Cities dining scene all worked at the restaurant with us. And we, we had a, a blast when we were allowed to, but I think very quickly they wanted to, they wanted it to be a hotel restaurant. Before, before we opened, they, all they said was they didn't want it to be a, a hotel restaurant. They wanted it to be a good, a, a good restaurant in a hotel. And then as soon as the place opened, I, I, I don't know, just, I think just the structure of how that, that shit works, you know, we're like, you have the hotel owners and then you have this management company and you have, you know, the food and beverage director and then you have the chef and it's like, who, who is whose boss and who actually gets to make decisions and who actually puts a big damper on creativity. Yeah. I mean, it's probably really, really heavily on the kind of P&L, like very rigid, I would imagine. There's not probably a whole lot of wiggle room for, oh, you want to try this out kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, there never is. I, I feel like kind of the opposite. And I mean, I, I think their expectations are a lot higher in a hotel restaurant, but I also think that there's, you know, banquets, 
alone will solve a lot of your problems as far as food cost and you know things things like that so i didn't enjoy it i left there um didn't really have anything else to do and i met these guys that uh had consulted on the violet hour in chicago and they had mentioned like you ever thought about moving to nashville i was like no why would i why would i think that and uh, here i am like 12 years later i mean you meet those guys and they were opening the violet hour in chicago i think it's like alchemy consulting and then somehow you kind of get in touch with Ben and Max Goldberg, obviously they're the founders of Strategic Hospitality, a bunch of different restaurants now in Nashville, but at the time they were opening or getting ready to open the Patterson House. And then they kind of convince you to move down there and kind of take a break from cooking and be a bartender and kind of this roundabout way, you basically wind up helping open the Patterson House, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, exactly. I When I left that uh, hotel chef job, I I was like, I don't want to cook anymore. And there was this uh, bartender in Minneapolis named Johnny Michaels, who I'm not sure where he's at now, but He's a fucking legend in Minneapolis. I don't know. I was, I, he was like the bartender I would go to where I was like, man, this guy's like making drinks the way that a chef would make food. And uh, everything was really thought out and really interesting. And, you know, he wasn't afraid to like, you know, make people feel uh, weird about a drink. He wasn't just trying to put, you know, sugar, make sugary fruity drinks. He was like trying to, I don't know, push the push the limits of, of people in those days. And uh, I was like, man, I want to do what you do. It looks like so much more fun. He's like, you should talk to uh, Toby and Jason. They're in town right now working on a thing here. Uh, in Minneapolis. I talked to them and they kind of pitched this idea and they were like, well, you, you know, these guys in Nashville are about your age and they're doing some cool things. And I'm like, oh, what else do they own? And they're like, oh, they have this trailer park themed bar called Paradise Park. And I was like, okay, they're going to open a, a fancy cocktail bar, huh? I don't know. I came down and met them. And on that trip, I think I, I also went to Atlanta and met with uh, Annie Quatrano, like the Bacchanalia, you know, that group. When I got back to Minneapolis, I was like, yeah, I think, I think Nashville is the move. So I moved down. We we had a blast. I, I loved Patterson House. I loved the you know that opening team that we had. I think the way that the city embraced us, being like this new thing, and it was it was very like warm. It was very uh, I've never experienced. Well, I guess when we opened Capri, it was similar too. But I don't know. The city just seemed to like kind of embrace it and felt felt good. It was kind of like the first of its kind, really, for like Nashville too, right? Like I mean, there wasn't anything else really like that, even in like hotels and stuff. It's only cocktails, you know, like it's there, there's a food program and that's just to get you to drink more, more cocktails, you know, still, I think, you know, Attaboy is also in this realm, but I feel like if you're a, if you want to learn how to bartend, it, like those style cocktails, like get a job at the Patterson house or Attaboy in Nashville, because all you will do is make cocktails. Like there's no, you're not pouring highballs. You're not opening beers. You're not pouring wine. I mean, very rarely do you do that stuff. You're, you're just making cocktails. So it's easy to be obsessed with. And when we opened, I think it was, it was new. And we hired a lot of people with cooking backgrounds or like non, non bartending backgrounds because they became more of a clean slate, you know, like uh, kind of show them uh, our way to do things. I don't know. It was, it was a blast. Yeah. Easier to train. You don't have to like, well, I'm used to doing it this way. It's like, yeah, but this is the way we do it here. And there's a reason for it. And you don't have to like have that kind of war between like mentalities. Years later, I did a consulting job at some place in like suburban Chicago. I was trying to, you know, show like 50 year old people how to make an old fashioned. They were just looking at me like, I've been making these for longer than you've been alive. Like, what are you? Yeah, you're right. Sure. Modeling cherries and orange peels. And I don't know. Just It's easier to, I think, uh, teach people that don't have habits yet in general. So, yeah, from there, like you're working at the Patterson house and then you kind of come up with the concept for the catbird seat. 
was that a concept that you always kind of had in the back of your mind or was it just something that eventually you kind of came up with on the fly? Uh, no, it was something uh, me and Eric Anderson had worked together in Minneapolis. And uh, there was another buddy of ours named John Radel, who uh, was a chef in Minneapolis too. Uh, the three of us worked together at Arigo back in the, uh, you know, right at the end when, uh, when, it, when it closed. And we had talked about kind of that concept of the three of us, like we cook whatever we want. We uh, hand it directly to people we don't have front of the house staff, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, we didn't get very far in, in those days. I didn't really know what it took to open a restaurant or how to find investors or, you know, all those things. It was just kind of this pipe dream idea that three of us had. And when I first moved to Nashville, uh, when I was first here, John uh, died. And then Eric uh, and I, you know, Eric and I kept in touch. Eric has some family here in Nashville. I don't know. At one point, Ben said, would you ever want to cook again? Because I was doing some cooking stuff here. Like I would cook for a random birthday party or Valentine's Day or something like that. And her Ben being like, you're actually pretty good at this. And, you know, I guess I had some places on my resume and stuff too. But yeah, I pitched that idea and then called Eric and was like, dude, you want to do this thing in Nashville? Our opening team, we, uh, you know, I guess Jane, I had uh, met in Chicago and she worked at a wine shop and at the Violet Hour. She's more wine focused, but great at making cocktails. This girl, Mamie, who I knew from Alma in Minneapolis, and she worked at a place called Levon that I'd worked at for a while back in the day. And Tom Bayless worked in the kitchen at Patterson House. So that was like our opening team at, at Capard. Were Max and Ben kind of on board right away with the idea? Or did you guys go through a couple different kind of iterations or tweak the concept a little? Or Yeah, it, it was weird kind of how it came out because, uh, you know, Ben one day was like, uh, hey, the space above us is a, it was a salon when Patterson House first opened. He's like, yeah, the salon upstairs is moving so that space is available and the landlady asked if if we wanted to do something up there and i was like yeah what were you thinking and ben was like what about that idea you had you think that would work up there and i was like no not at all uh, i think the idea was crazy um and he's like i think we can do it and i was like your money dude all right <laughs> so i don't know we, we went with it you know it was cool you know we worked with manuals island on the architecture um there and it was cool to like talk to him about, oh, hey, have you ever eaten at Co in New York? And he's like, yeah, like he had eaten at all the restaurants that we were like, you know, kind of talking about in those days and what we wanted it to become. How crazy were some of like the first dishes that you were coming up with? Because I'm sure like when you're first developing the menu, it's like, it's almost probably like too much creativity because you're probably just like, oh, we could do this, we could do this. Because it's at that point, it's not really like sticking within like confines of any sort of budget really, right? Yeah. And that's, I think that's the problem. Like I, I love parameters, you know, like there, if, if somebody tells you like, Hey, cook me something with a duck and peaches or whatever. I'm like, okay, I can, I can do that right now. But if somebody's just like, Hey, cook me something. I'm like, Whoa, whoa, whoa wait, what? <laughs> like, where, where do I, where do I begin? What, what do you want? You know? Like, so I feel like, yeah, when we first opened, it was, it was kind of madness. You know, we kind of created a little structure at first of like, you know, we'll do a little line of snacks. And, you know, at that point, Eric, after Eric and I worked together at a, the hotel in Minneapolis, when I went to open Patterson house, Eric went to Nomo and he was at, or he was in Copenhagen at Nomo for, I don't know, three months or something like that. So he just came back from that. So he was like fired up. I was excited to be back in the kitchen again. There's a, a brief point in between Patterson House and Catbird Seat where Grant in uh, Chicago had reached out to me and he said he was opening a cocktail bar and he's like, hey, I want to do like Alinea, but with cocktails and you have cocktail knowledge now and you have uh, Alinea knowledge. So you want to come back to Chicago and help open this place? I was like, how do I say no to that guy, you know? <laughs> so I moved back to Chicago for uh, a little bit in between Patterson and Capard. 
and uh, and very quickly I I realized uh, aviary wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I like to think that I had some um, influence in kind of how it all started. I, I know that opening venue was a lot of ideas that me and this guy Craig uh, came up with together, and Grant gave me some credit in the book, which is nice. But you know, I I went from you know having a staff that loved me and environment that I had a lot of control over at the Patterson house to, uh, you know, just kind of being somebody's drill sergeant uh, and not, not really having my own voice as much as I would like, or at least the voice wasn't mine. You know, I think the, I think what the aviary does and what Alinea does is super cool and amazing. And, um, but it's, you know, my, my, my style is not quite the same as that. Did Eric Anderson, he joined what, probably a couple months in like four or five months in or. No, he was there from the beginning. Yeah. Did you kind of always have in your mind that it would be kind of like a two-year plan at the restaurant or was it just, that was just kind of the natural, like, I've been here for two years, I want to do something new kind of thing? I, I think when Ben originally asked, like, how, he's like, how, would, how long would you want to do this for? What do you think, like, a chef, how long would a chef last at a place like this? And I said, I think a two-year run would be cool. I don't, you know, I think after two years, I would be ready to do something else, which, which I was. You know, I left right around the two-year mark, maybe a little shy of two years. Um, and then Trevor, we got Trevor uh, a visa to come work in Nashville. And uh, so he kind of jumped on when I left. And then I think Eric stayed on for another three to six months. And then Trevor took over. Then he was there for about two years. And then he had a similar thing happen where he, uh, his old boss in Copenhagen at Noma was like, hey, dude, uh, I want you to come back and be the be the head guy here. And so he was toying with the idea of going back and he told Renee that he was going to go back and then he changed his mind and ended up staying in Nashville. So then kind of after like two years, and it basically, you kind of set the precedent because now it's about two years for every chef that works at the Capert seat and then they kind of go do kind of their own thing. It's almost like, I would say like a own your own restaurant incubator. Like the next step is kind of doing your own restaurant, basically a stepping stone to that and figuring out what your concept is. And it's almost like, a free place to like develop your menu if if you haven't done that or kind of maybe your culinary voice. But you wind up becoming culinary director, strategic hospitality and, and kind of build out Pinewood Social. Was that just kind of a nice change of pace? Just kind of like, all right, was doing fine dining. Now I get to do something a little bit more casual. Yeah, I thought it would was a fun, you know, project to to work on. I think we you know, originally we were going for like some kind of like uh, Americana was the word that I used a lot for the food when we first opened. And, you know, there was liver and onions on the menu and, you know, cheese curds and things like that. Um, and it, it's kind of stepped away from from that now. Yeah, it was I th it was more like, you know, when I told Ben that I was going to step away from uh, Capert, he, you know, I told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, I tell you what, if you help me with this next place, uh, we'll help you with your place. So uh, Pinewood was theirs. And when I left Aviary, I, I had a, a friend, uh, Jeff Pikus, who was a chef at a place called Maud's Liquor Bar, which is like a Brendan Sotokoff restaurant in Chicago. And uh, I went and worked there in the kitchen because I knew I was going to be opening Capward um, soon. So I just needed like a job for, I don't know, three months or four months or whatever it was. And uh, Pikus was like, yeah, come and work in the kitchen with us. And uh, I worked in the kitchen for a little while. And then one day the owner got mad and fired a bartender on the spot. And the owner comes down in the kitchen. He's like, you know how to bartend, right? And I was like, ah, yeah, I guess. I mean, I've bartended before. And he's like, you're working in the bar tonight. And I was like, what? What's happening? And then um, Pikus is like, no, he's working in the kitchen tonight. Because I think he saw the look on my face. Like, I don't want to bartend here. And uh, then they went off into a different room for a while and then came back. And Pikus is like, you're working in the bar tonight. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and then I ended up just working in the bar there, which well, it was fine. I made more money and all that. But I did have a good time. I, I, I did enjoy it. 
when I mentioned to you know Ben and Max that I wanted to do my own place, I kept calling it the, the sexy French restaurant, and that's what I was looking for when we were opening Bastion. I was looking for a spot to do to do that. I think there's some I don't know something about like oysters and beef tartare and bone marrow, and I don't know. I pictured something with like skulls and bones, and you know, really like kind of carnal you know, dark, dim, candlelit. Like if you're eating beef tartare in the catacombs of Paris or something like that was what I wanted to open. And uh, then when we found the space for Bastion, I was like, ah, I don't think this is the, the spot for that. And so we came, we kind of built the concept of Bastion around the, the shape of the space, if that makes sense. You know, where you have like the big, well, when you came to eat, we were, uh, it was during kind of the COVID time. So we were uh, serving dinner out in the in the bar area. Yeah, it's kind of got like a, a weird, almost like V-shaped layout. Like you got the one side, which is kind of the bar area and the music venue. And then the other side is kind of like where the tasting counter, whatever you want to call, is down the right side, essentially. Yeah, so we did the tasting counter. When we first opened, it was a little different. I didn't want it to be just another tasting menu like Capert. So we had kind of this three by five grid where, you know, you picked a five course menu, three options in every course. I guess it's essentially a prefix menu, but we gave everybody a little card they could fill out. And we would, you know, it wouldn't say steak fish or chicken or whatever it would it would always say like different it would always be two word descriptions and it, i guess the show the social experiments was uh you know you, you don't know exactly what you're going to get i don't want to tell you exactly what you're going to get i want you to like go down this list of things and whatever jumps out at you i want you to pick that one it'll all be a surprise that way or or not maybe it'll be expected but i think for the most part it was always a surprise how did you come up with the name because isn't it after like a character from like the never-ending story like who came up with that yeah, it's it's funny. We had this uh, party at uh, my place before Bastion opened. I just had some friends over, and I was like, "We gotta we gotta figure out a name for this thing." And I it was I got like refrigerator magnets and one of those like you know like a, a big easel with like a you know no, like paper I could write on, and I was like, "Oh, we're just gonna have this this party to come up with the name." And the party ended up being a, a really weird night where like one of my drunken neighbors kind of crashed the party and it was silly. But at one point we were going through like all these kind of like, I don't know, 80s, 90s nostalgia and never ending story came out in conversation. I think the Southern Oracle was one of the, uh, which would have been a, a pretty pretentious name. Uh, but that, you know, the, like that's the scene from never ending story where he's like running through the two giant statues. Uh, and then, um, you know, Bastion is obviously the kid's name. And that wasn't necessarily the... Uh, you know, it made the it made the short list, I guess. A few weeks later, my buddy's wife had texted me and said, she was looking at the OP de Cachon cookbook, and it said, in a world of increasing automation, uh, the restaurant is the last bastion of fundamental human labor or something like that. But it was that word bastion again, and I was like, oh, there it is. And and I did think that, you know, because the I think analog was a word that kept going through my my mind with bastion, like not, not just with like the way we listen to music here, but the, you know, the way we try to try to do things, you know, not, not that old fashioned of an idea, but kind of, uh, you know, let's, you know, not do things the easy way if, if there's a better way. <laughs> so Brian Baxter, when he was on the podcast, he told the story of how he wound up, you know, working there with you. So give me one story that stands out about him when he was there in his bastion days, any direction you want to go in. I would love to roast the guy, but I don't, I don't know how I'd do that. He's a, a very stand up dude. His food is great. He's got a great like vision for what he's trying to make. I think he, he does a great job of like, you know, he's from Florida. He has some Southern roots. He worked with uh, Sean at uh, McCready's and Husk. And uh, so he has like that Southern influence, but he also has some French influence and he also likes more modern stuff. So I, I think his food is great. Um, but one of the most impressive things about Baxter to me was a, uh, you know, not uh, aside from his culinary abilities was when he left Husk, 
it's kind of weird. He like saved up years and years of like a vacation time to like basically get surgery on his his ankle. <laughs> and like, what a shitty, a shitty thing to have to spend your vacation time on. Uh, but we we hired him right. Um, he was like out of the restaurant. I think he was unsure if he was going to go back or not at that point. Uh, but that's when I started talking to him about coming over here. And uh, so he had just had the surgery and, you know, his like first day here was his first day on his foot with his brace off or whatever. And so he went from like not walking without a brace to like working 12 hour, you know, 14 hour days or whatever, like on this ankle and, and didn't whine about it, didn't complain about it, didn't mention it. It's like it wasn't until afterwards he would like go outside and he would like stretch it in this this weird way. Like, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, oh, just, uh, you know, my ankle's kind of fucked up. But he never, like, complained about it or anything. I don't know. He's a badass. I love that guy. No, he's awesome for sure. And it'll be interesting to see what comes next after whenever his stint with the Capret seat's over and everything. But after kind of Bastion opens, you wind up getting nominated for a James Beard Award, Best Chef Southwest. How did you find out about the nomination, the first one? Because you've been nominated, I think, like, every year since. I don't know. They usually do it. I don't know if they do it early in the morning or I don't know. I usually get a bunch of text messages from people that are paying attention. Uh, <laughs> it's usually how that stuff works out. They're like, hey, congrats. And I'm like, uh, for what? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that would be cool. James Beard Award would be cool. I don't know. It doesn't really change anything. You know, like, I don't know. We're, we're fortunate. Like we, the restaurant's booked out. You know, we're booked out every day except for New Year's Eve right, right now because we're doing something different with New Year's Eve this year. I've been here for, um, we'll be coming up on six years and the beginning of next year will be six years. That bastion. And I never thought I could stay somewhere for more than two years ever. So it's a weird feeling. It's good though. I'm also, you know, older now. My priorities are a little different. I think priority when when we were at Capford was to win awards and get notoriety and things like that. Like we were really chasing that stuff. And we had a really good publicist that got us, you know, to cook some fun dinners, but we ran ourselves really hard in those days. And, you know, it'd be like work five, five days. Well, Capford would be open four days, but We'd have Tuesdays a prep day and that would be all day long. And then we'd work for four days and then we'd go to Aspen for food and wine on the weekend. And then we'd come back and work. You know, we didn't have, there's not like a, a B team. There's not a JV squad that we can like send in when we're gone. It was just like, it's us every day. If you came to Capward Seat in that first two years, Eric and I were there every single service. There was one I missed for a funeral, but other than that, and that wasn't, that didn't count because it was a private event. But, um, you know, and I think the priority for, Bastion, when we opened, was like, you know, how can we make it a better place to work? How can we make the employees like it more? How can we? I think just priorities changed, you know. When COVID happens, things kind of get locked down. Did you already have an idea of how you were going to shift, you know, once that starts happening, the wheels start spinning and how you're going to pivot Bastion to reopen as soon as possible kind of thing? Not a clue. Uh, we, We had nothing to work with, you know, like at least the first month, it was just like, it was pretty bleak, you know. Had to let all the staff go, and you know we did. We I think we had a little Kickstarter for the GoFundMe or whatever for the for the restaurant staff, and got to give everybody some money for that. You know we tried our best to like. I think my wife was showing everybody how to collect unemployment and stuff like that, how to like max out all that stuff. You know we just wanted to make sure everybody was taken care of, even though because we couldn't take care of anyone uh, for for a while. And then um, I still came into the restaurant every day just to like check in on it. I guess we weren't living that far away, so. Um, I would just pop in every day and make bread or something like that here. Yeah. And then Adam and I started talking about like kind of the possibilities of what we could do and the idea of turning the bar into the restaurant for um, Wednesday through Saturday, we could kind of get, 
at least what the restaurant was making, we could make that a night. Uh, same amount of people, which is spread out more in like a bigger space. And uh, just opened the bar on uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday for the, uh, I don't know, for the bartenders too. We, we, we were able to hire back, I think, four bartenders. And I think we only needed four bartenders at, or three bartenders at the time. Two bartenders and a bar back, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, it wasn't very busy, but I also was afraid to uh, have like a, a busy bar. We had to turn people away and be the magic police all night long and stuff like that. So we just did what we could and what we thought was best. Did the kind of partnership that you guys did with Alabreja, Chef Edgar, Victoria's kind of I don't want to say taco pop-up necessarily, but like, was that an extension of thinking after kind of get back up and running and open, like what else can we do? Or we're not using the space these days. Let's let somebody else use it kind of thing or. Uh, yeah. Kind of, I mean, I just really like Edgar and I thought his food is great and he's, he's just a, a good dude and a, a go-getter. So that was, yeah, we just wanted to figure out a way I could help him and, you know, put his food in front of more people. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was fun. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, it looks awesome. I mean, his food looks awesome from the Instagram and everything too. So, and then I think earlier this year you got to cook for the Band Box, which for people don't know, the minor league baseball team, Nashville Sounds. They basically have a rotating section of their stadium for you know, local chefs, and and you got to do I think like a month or a weekend or however they did it. It was just one game. Yeah, they they reach out. We try to get as many of uh, the Nashville chefs to as we can to like do something for the band box it's it's fun it's you know it's just something different a way to make you know make junk food for a day or whatever you basically just come up with the recipe and then show the the staff there how to present it and what'd you come up with what was your dish mine was so during um during the shutdown when things were bleak and we were you know not going anywhere because everything was shut down i would i got really into mapo tofu i would go to there was this one asian um, store called Inner Asian Market. Uh, that's pretty close to Bastion, and that was like my COVID hack. Like they, you know, they didn't run out of toilet paper the whole time. They like they had all that stuff, and they would like limit people. They would tell people straight up, like, "No, you, you don't need that much toilet paper. You, <laughs> you get you get one roll. You get two rolls, which is great. More people should have done that." Anyway, I, yeah, I was just making you know food from whatever I'd, I could buy there, and for Bandbox, I did like this mapo tofu kind of sloppy Joe type thing. I don't know, somewhere between the Sloppy Joe. I called it the Sloppo Mapo. I don't think they printed that though. They probably shouldn't have. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was like, a, like I got Bon Mi rolls from an inter-Asian market and did like a Mapo Tofu sort of thing inside of it. It was good. And then recently, a couple of weeks ago, it was the Catbird Seats 10-year anniversary. I think you guys did like a two-night thing. Eric Anderson came back. You know, Brian Baxter was there. You guys all kind of cooked together. Out of those kind of two nights, that two-night dinner thing, what was kind of one moment that stood out to you now that you've had a couple of weeks to kind of reflect on it? Man, the first night was rough. Uh, I think just because, you know, getting into the flow and being back in the kitchen and stuff like that. Like, there, you know, I don't know. It was, it was rough. The first night was, was definitely uh, difficult. And I think I didn't sleep that night. Went home, thought about it all night. Then the second day was a fucking blast. Like, the second turn of the second night, it was just... Like all people that are like friends from way back, you know, people that were coming in when we first opened the restaurant and have continuously come in. It was just fun to see. I don't know. It's crazy. You know, you when you open a restaurant or a bar or whatever, like anything in this sphere of hospitality, like you, you're creating, I don't know, something bigger than than just that. You know, like people come, people come into Bastion Restaurant celebrating their anniversary because they met in Bastion Bar. You know, you're building a... A whole like ecosystem, a whole like I don't know, this thing that's deeper than than just 
making people food and making making people drinks. I don't know. Looking back at like 10 years of the Capricorn seat, it's, you know, four nights a week, 35 to 40 people a night for 10 years. Like that's, that's a lot of people that came through there. How would you say since you've been involved, you know, since you moved to Nashville, how has the food scene changed since you've been there from when you first got there to now? Um, it changed a lot. You know, like when I first moved here, we'd go to uh, Margot, Marche, City House. Um, Park Cafe was doing some cool stuff back in those days, Miel. But, you know, since then, it's just been more. I think that's probably happened in every every city. You know, it's just if you look back at like 2012 and 2011 in Nashville, when we first opened the Catbird Seed, it was, you know, it was like hot chicken was just kind of becoming a unknown publicized thing. I'm not saying it didn't exist before that, but it was, you know, kind of getting some notoriety. People were coming and, you know, you, you could have a culinary experience by going to Roberts and getting a bologna sandwich or going to, you know, Martin's Barbecue or Peg Leg or uh, one of the hot chicken places to get hot chicken. And then also go to Catbird Seed and, you know, like these uh, Rolf and Daughters and stuff like that. So I think we've just gotten more, you know, it's the diners have gotten, I don't know, more like, uh, there's more foodie culture now than there was. I, you know, don't love that word, but yeah, I think people probably maybe understand a bit more of what goes into a restaurant. Like they're not fully there, but I think people maybe have more knowledge, I guess, of food than they did back then. What do you want to see kind of become part of Nashville, you know, going forward for the next five, 10 years? I think just more, you know, more uh, international stuff, you know, more like. I would love more sushi, more sushi type places and more like, I don't know, you know, what Edgar's doing, you know, like when he, him and uh, his buddy Julio, like when they get their spots open, like the brick and mortar type spots open, you know, just more, more international stuff, I guess. A lot of, there's a lot of gaps, you know, like you could come to Nashville and open a sandwich shop right now. And if somebody did a really good job with it, like we, we have sandwich shops, but not enough. Do you still do jujitsu? Yeah. Well, yesterday got crushed. It's frustrating sometimes. A decent amount of chefs kind of get into that. I mean, I'm Anthony Bourdain fan and that was a really, he wound up getting obsessed with that at one point. Is that just because it's another avenue to like work your mind? Like you're trying to solve things, you know, kind of on the, I mean, there's a physicality standpoint to it. Obviously it's good for your health, exercise, all that stuff too. But, but it seems like also that there's kind of this moving puzzle component to it. Yeah, no, that's totally it. I mean, it's a it's a total chess game, and it's uh, you know I think I was actually talking to uh, Eric Anderson yesterday on the phone about it, and he he just started doing jujitsu, which is awesome. Um, so add another chef to that list. But uh, we were we were making we were talking about that specifically, and I was like, I think I think it's because we it's a moment where you you can't think about anything else. You know what I mean? Like for the hour that you're at jujitsu, you can't. You can't really think about person that no showed at the restaurant or the you know guest that left a nasty review or you know all, all the other things that might go through your mind or you know the the missing missing uh, uh, elements of that dish that you're working on or whatever like you don't have time to think about any of that you're thinking about defending yourself from one of your buddies trying to choke you out <laughs> I still enjoy it and I still I keep going back future plans anything on the horizon or is it just uh, yeah there's some stuff. Nothing I'm going to talk about yet, but there's, you know, there's, there's definitely some, um, some ideas we got in the pipeline. Yeah. I don't know. Right now, happy, happy where I'm at. And, you know, I think Bastion's a lot of fun. So this question comes from the previous guest that we had on the podcast, Jason Zygmunt, who was of Set Sun before it closed. Now he's doing some black cactus salsa. And uh, he's also going to be the chef at Sassetta out in Dallas. So he left behind a question, cake or pie? Ooh, 
<laughs> that's, that's a funny question. Uh, I, I'd say I'm more of a pie guy. I'm going to say uh, I do enjoy, you know, the texture of a really nice moist cake. That first restaurant that I worked at, uh, Kay's Kitchen, I think their their t-shirts used to say like, come for the coffee and stay for the pie or something. I don't know, something dumb like that. But they, there was a pie woman that came in every, you know, twice a week or whatever and made all these pies. She had her own kitchen in the basement. And uh, I don't know, it's more of a, maybe it's more of a Midwest thing. What would be the go-to kind of pie flavor? I don't know. We always have a chest pie at the on the menu at, at Bastion, but that's it's only because when I first moved to town, we you know we I would go to Arnold's way too often, and uh, Khalil would always give me a slice of pie or a slice of chest pie. When we opened Bastion, I thought it would be a fun thing to kind of mark the end of the menu. Like there's always this one thing, and uh, I feel like you know going back to what we said about having parameters uh, before, like you know we we say chest pie, but it's not. It's you know. It's just a, a spot on the menu where we can use kind of the pie structure to create flavors and make make some sort of flavor combination. What question do you want to ask the next guest? Can be anything. We're having a, a comedy show at Bastion tonight, and the theme of the comedy show is F Mary Kill. I don't know if I can. I don't know if kids are listening to this. It's the theme of the comedy show tonight, and one that we did in the restaurant recently was Fuck Mary Kill, pancakes, waffles, French toast. I think that says a lot about a person and how they answer that question. If you marry pancakes, if you do anything but kill pancakes, that's the wrong answer. You have to kill pancakes in that scenario. But, you know, other people might have different opinions. Which are you preferring out of the waffles and the French toast then? A waffle is a pancake with personality. Or I guess a pancake's a waffle without any personality. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I like French toast and, and waffles. This question comes in from one of our listeners. Basically, with all the accolades, awards, famous places you've kind of worked through your career, how do you manage kind of your own ego, so to speak, so you don't get too big headed, too full of yourself, you know, in the kitchen or in the restaurant or whatever, you know, future plans that you have going on? How do you kind of stay grounded? All that stuff is is good and fun. And, you know, it's nice to get recognized for working hard. At the end of the day, like if, you know, if your guest's not happy, if your staff's not happy, like you're doing something wrong. So, you know, the focus now is to try to keep the staff happy and keep the, the guests happy. And, and that, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think of other jobs where like you have a, a deadline of like, you know, hey, by the end of next week, you need to do this. And it's like our deadline every day is, you know, five o'clock, you know, like when the doors open, like that's when you, you have all the shit to do. And then at five o'clock, you dim the lights and bring in the grills and turn on some music and guests start showing up and, and, you have to treat them all as, as good as you can. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just, we do it every day. You can think you're the best chef in the world, but if people aren't enjoying the food on the plate or leaving the restaurant unhappy, then it doesn't fucking matter. So we got a few more questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Looking back on it. Uh, Doug Flicker in Minneapolis. I don't know. He, he just had a he was just always making good food and it was always interesting. And I don't know, he had this restaurant called Araga and then he had a restaurant called Piccolo. If you watch the Anthony Bourdain episode where he, uh, where he goes to Piccolo in Minneapolis, I think, I know, I know that Doug was a big fan of Bourdain and Bourdain said, this is one of the most inspired meals I've ever had in this country or something like that, which I don't know, that, that should say a lot about it. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I think if I walked into a kitchen and they didn't have a Vitamix brand blender, I would be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, what are you, what are you, what are you trying to do here? Uh, invite a mix if you want to send me anything for saying that. That would be great. What's uh, one thing in the restaurant that you would not fix yourself? Oh, man, we're pretty handy. Uh, there's a guy working on one of the 
uh, freezers right now downstairs. Um, so I'm glad that he's doing that and not me, but, um, you know, we are, we are pretty handy here. I wish, I wish that in culinary school, they had, a you know, some commercial refrigeration classes and things like that. Um, just to teach you how to, you know, clean the coils and maintain your equipment better and stuff like that. I think that's a big gap that culinary schools are missing. Would you recommend culinary school to anybody who is like coming up, like somebody just started kind of in the kitchen there and they're like, Hey, I'm real serious about this. Like, do you think I should go based on, I mean, your experience, you went, you know, for half of it, but then found it more worthwhile to go overseas and learn. It depends what your mentality is. You know, if you think that you're going to go there to learn how to cook, you're, you're not, you know, if you think you know how to cook when you get done with culinary school, you, you don't like, you don't learn how to break down a salmon from watching an instructor break it down in front of a class or from doing it twice. You learn how to do it from doing it you know, 50 times or a hundred times or whatever. So that's, that's where you're going to get your education. As far as like, you know, it'll give you a base level education and you'll make connections and you'll make friends if you do it the right way. You know, like I know right now overseas, some restaurants, you need a culinary degree to, I think like, if you want to go stage at at Noma, I think you need like a culinary school degree to go there right now. There's some value in it, but I think there's a lot more to learn than that. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own scenario you usually give person gets stuck at the airport overnight, reaches out to you. You guys are closed. Say, Hey, where should I go eat? You point them in this direction. Uh, I went to Rolf. It was my birthday this past week. Uh, I was working that day. One of the cooks called in sick. So it was a, you know, I didn't get a chance to like get away. So Sunday night we went to uh, Rolf and daughters for like a late celebration and it was fucking great. That place is always great. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you haven't been to that you want to go, place that you haven't eaten that you want to eat at. Uh, I've never been to Japan, so eating at any restaurant there would be great. Um, we just booked a ticket to, uh, we're closed for the first week of January. My wife booked tickets last night for us to go to Oaxaca. So we have like four nights in Oaxaca, three nights in Oaxaca, one in Mexico City, and then two in La Paz, and then we head back. So I'm very excited for that trip. I'm a Mezcal fan as well, so it'll be a good, uh, good trip. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? When I was at Patterson House, there were these two guys that came in once. And they were, you know, they seemed like young, hip, cool guys. They were friendly. After they each had their first drink, I think whatever they took before they came, just like started, it like hit them. And things got really weird. Uh, the guy started like, whoever I was talking to at the bar, you know, uh, Patterson House is like a four-sided bar that you're, bartender you're in the middle of. And it was like a, probably a Sunday night where it was just me and one other bartender. So, you know, we're talking to a lot of different people trying to manage our time efficiently. And this guy would just follow, as I was talking to anyone, he would follow me and stand behind whoever I was talking to. And I was finally like, dude, I gotta, I like walked around, got outside the bar, walked around like, Hey dude, you gotta get out of here. And I uh, tried to get him and his friend out of the bar. But at that time, like their legs stopped working. <laughs> they were just like, they like forgot how to walk. It was really confusing and uh, kind of helped one of the guys and uh, his buddy like just fell over and kind of hit one of the tables and I think shit his pants. And uh, eventually I got them outside and got him into a cab, which I hope that cab driver forgave me. Yeah, you know, when I went back inside the restaurant or the, into the bar, everybody, everybody clapped for me. But uh, that was the, probably the weirdest thing that I ever saw. I mean, we see a lot of weird shit, you know. I, one of our bartenders here always uses the phrase like, well, we, we do poison people for a living. And so, you know, we, we can bring out the best or the worst in people, you know, and it's not really up to our control. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything fast food or in a grocery store? Like, you know, it's down this aisle, you try and avoid it kind of thing. You know, it's terrible for you, but you just can't help. Yeah. Well, my wife and I will 
pop in a, a frozen pizza after work sometimes. And I know that's just a gross thing, a, a gross habit, uh, but sometimes it's exactly what you want, you know? What's your go-to frozen pizza brand? You know, sometimes those California pizza kitchen, like the little, the littler guys, like the thinner crust are, are nice, but sometimes you want to just be a, a pig and eat those like DiGiorno cheese stuffed crust. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career and kind of point to that dish as being almost like your aha moment, like you knew you could do this professionally. Oh, I think it was just like riffing when um, I was a young cook and I'd go over to friends' houses that were not cooks, just like... They'd be like, Josh, make something to eat. And you're just like looking through the pantry of like, you know, somebody in their 20s of like the, the shit that they have in their refrigerator in there. And you're like just trying to like wing it. That was when I was like, oh, this is, you know, you're like cooking pasta with peanut butter and sriracha and you're like blowing their minds with it. And in your head, it makes sense. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment, episode scene that stands out? Or if you weren't, was there another culinary influencer, chef on TV, something like that, that kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up? No, I mean, he, he is the best. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I got to, he shot some stuff here um, with me. We, we had at Capard, we went to Patterson House. Um, we did some B-roll at, I think they shot some B-roll at Bastion. I don't think uh, Bourdain himself came here. And then uh, we did a thing at Pinewood. That was, you know... Hanging out with him was a blast. Talking to him was a blast. You know, the first time I did jujitsu was with him. He invited me along when he was here in town. He's like, I'd mentioned like, oh, that's always something I wanted to do. And he was like, well, let's, why don't you just fucking do it? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. That's a valid point. Every morning at eight o'clock this week, as long as we're here, we'll, we're going to go to this gym. It's like, if you want to join, it'd be great to have you. I was like, okay. And then I talked to some guys on his crew and I'm like, is he, is he being serious? Or is he just like kind of giving me the, and he's like, not enough. If he invited you, you should try it. And I was like, well, I'm afraid I'm going to look ridiculous and I don't know what to wear and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, you're going to look ridiculous. Like, no matter what your first time you will look ridiculous, but ended up showing up and uh, I don't know. I thought it was cool. I've been doing it ever since. I guess that kind of answers the question. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug all that stuff. I don't look at Facebook. Uh, Soft Architect is my Instagram. Bastion Nashville. BastionNashville.com. Yeah. Bastion. I don't know. Bastion Nash or something like that is our Maybe it's Bastion Nashville is our Instagram. You'll find it. Just pop Bastion in there. It'll pop up. What are your hours right now? Restaurants open Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, we see people from 5.30 to 9.30. No, 5.30 to 8.30. The bars open seven days a week, 5 p.m. to whenever we feel like closing. Again, appreciate you coming on. We had a great time at Bastion. Hopefully, we'll be back down to Nashville sooner rather than later. A whole bunch of other spots we want to try, but also want to make it back to you know some of the places that we really enjoyed on our first kind of long stay down there too as well. So hopefully we'll be seeing you soon, but glad you guys are still around. Glad you guys made it through COVID. It's, it's a cool spot. It's a like industrial warehouse, but like the warehouse is all redone and there's like a furniture place. There's like a really cool like looking coffee shop like down just the block a little bit. And yeah, it's definitely just the area that a lot of people are in that area that just kind of was a new concept and they got in there and they give a shit and that's kind of what we're all about. So yeah, hopefully we'll be seeing you soon, but if you have anything from us, feel free to reach out. You know, we always want to support everybody that comes on the podcast, help support us. So whether it's new menu rollout, you want to plug it for 15 minutes or something like that, whatever, let us know. Otherwise, hopefully we'll see you soon. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. And uh, let me know if you come back to Nashville. A big thanks again to Chef Josh Habiger for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day before he starts his shift. He kind of recorded it upstairs at the restaurant. So 
really appreciate being able to finally get him on. I know he's pretty busy um, with a lot of different stuff going on and COVID and shutting down or reopening and all that stuff too as well. So when we went, I think it was, uh, they just kind of reopened a, a little bit from COVID and they were having people seating kind of where the the bar area, the big bar areas, the music venue and everything. But I think they're kind of mostly back to normal. They were doing a comedy show that night. Really appreciate him coming on. Again, make sure to check him out on Instagram at Soft Architect and then also at Bastion. Uh, you can find both those on Instagram too as well. Check out their website and everything. Make sure to check out ours too, at Spoon Mob. Uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook too as well, but mainly use Instagram. Uh, make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com. Subscribe, follow to the podcast, wherever we get your podcast from. Feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback, spoonmob at Yahoo to email us directly or go through the contact portal on the website. Uh, appreciate everybody listening. More stuff on the way. And that is it for this week. So we will talk to you guys next week.